Initially, like everybody, I was scared when the world came to a screeching halt. I didn't know what this virus was or how to protect myself and my family from it. But I knew that if we stayed indoors, we'd be doing the first thing to keep safe. And there was still relief at having to sit still and stop running. Today, I live life urgently. And it's still what I aspire to. But now urgency is no longer about moving fast, but about intention and living every day with that purpose in mind. Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to What I've Learned. Today, I'm talking with Bozama St. John about how she's redefining what it means to live urgently. Pascal, the 17th century French philosopher, once said that all of humanity's problems stem from men's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. If that's true, then what we've gone through in the past year should set us up to solve a lot of problems. But of course, just because we can't go out or travel or fill our lives with constant busyness doesn't mean we're sitting peacefully in a room alone. Anyone with a Netflix account or a smartphone knows there are many ways to resist being alone with ourselves. It's proof that being alone is what we make of it. That's been the experience of my guest today. It's hard to describe Bosoma St. John. The term force of nature doesn't quite do it. She's the global chief marketing officer at Netflix after big marketing roles at WME, Uber, and Apple. But the most apt description of Boz is probably the one on her Twitter feed, which says she's redefining badassery. And if anyone can, it's Boz. I first met her at a dinner in Las Vegas many years ago. I was immediately and utterly taken by her, which of course is the reaction everybody has. You see her and you think, I need to be a part of that. We hit it off, started talking, and haven't really stopped since. Here's what she's learned over the past year. My mantra is to live life urgently. But 2020 shook me up and challenged me to change the way I think about living urgently. I was constantly getting on and off planes and interacting with new people all the time. It began to feel like urgency meant how quickly I could move through life. And then, boom! I was forced to be at home and reevaluate how to live life urgently without moving at all. Now urgency is no longer about moving fast, but about intention and living every day with that purpose in mind. And the way I do it is by going deeper, by going further in. Now here's some irony. I'm actually afraid of death, like the depth of the ocean, or rather depth in the sense of not being able to see the bottom, and that I'm also afraid of heights too. So in my life, before the pandemic, I was flying too high, which was scary. But now I'm going deep, which is also scary. But I kind of like this version. My new intentionality has also changed the idea of what productivity looks like. Before, I thought productivity meant having a lot of things going on. But now it's a different type of productivity. One that has nothing to do with where I am in the world or how many places I'm in during the week. I've been able to spend more time with my daughter, Lael, who's 11. So after a year of being at home together consistently, our relationship is different. It's not about how much I love her or how much she loves me. That hasn't changed. We've always loved each other in absence. But what has changed is that there's no rush in the way we love each other. I know I'll see her in the morning and she knows I'll kiss her goodnight. 
We eat almost every meal together. And when on the weekends, we find that we're off in our own little corners and hours may pass when we don't connect. In that time, one of us will realize that it's too quiet in the house and we'll go in search of the other. You'd think we were in different cities again, but no, proximity has been redefined. It's like we just need to lay eyes on each other to make sure we're still there. Being present, literally and figuratively, has never been more important. So I also started exploring meditation during that time. Before, I never thought I had time, which, yes, I now see the irony. But I found that being mindful of my breath was soothing. And because Lael and I are in such close proximity, it made sense to bring her into the practice. We'd breathe together at night before bed. Meditation also helped when in the summer, our anxiety over our health crisis was compounded by racial and social unrest. I was constantly talking about racial inequality and gender inequality all of the time, and it was tiring. But I remained optimistic. I was surprised by the wakefulness people showed. Obviously, we all know we have a lot more work to do, but I'm seeing a lot of people willing to look at themselves, and instead of seeing privilege as an insult, they're acknowledging it and saying, okay, I have some power and privilege here. What can I do with it? So perhaps we're learning as a society that racism is not a problem for Black people alone to solve, and sexism is not a problem for women alone to solve either. In all of this, the biggest lesson I've learned is that while I love people and love being around them, I am finding myself in my aloneness too. I've been nervous about being by myself. Oh, I've got my daughter here, but I mean being without all the other noise from my life before. But I really enjoy being by myself. I love this version of me. We are going to hear more from Boz when we are back, right after the short break. This year of so much uncertainty and anxiety has been a hard one for sleep, especially with so many of our routines disrupted. But that's exactly why we need to prioritize our sleep now more than ever, because getting enough sleep is what allows us to be more effective at managing stressful, anxious, and disruptive times. That's why we've teamed up with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's a series of bedtime stories, meditations, and other sound experiences from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, Gabby Bernstein, Sarah Oster, and many more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. Remember, a great day starts the night before. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite Audible sleep experiences at the end of the podcast. Boz, I'm so happy to be with you. I love your mantra to live life urgently and would love to know where did it come from? Was there a moment when it just crystallized as the way you want to live your life? Yes, yes. Well, I think as in most things in life, you know, you learn the lessons through some sort of extreme, right? For me, the extreme was the grief of losing my husband, Peter, to a six-month battle with Burkitt's lymphoma, which is a rare cancer. And in that course of time of his illness, especially towards the end, you know, we started to keep a list of things that we wanted to do. Mostly they were little things, you know, the little things that you knew would be the last time that you did something. 
But that wasn't where I really learned the lesson. It was after he passed away and I was searching for just how to be, you know, it was like I was angry at the sun for shining and mad at people who just kept living as if everything was fine. You know, my daughter was four at the time and we needed to find a new way of just living. And what really crystallized for me at that moment was that I felt that he had been not just robbed of the rest of his years, but I felt sad about the fact that there were so many things that he always said he wanted to do that he didn't do. You know, and it inspired me because I just don't want to get to the end of my life having felt the same way. And what is interesting is that you don't think life ends with death. You have a very deep faith. So living life urgently for you is connected to the fact that there is more to life than the time we have on this earth. Tell us about that and your faith and how young were you when you realized that? (laughs) Well, faith is such a journey, isn't it? At least it has been for me. I grew up in a very conservative Christian household. But early on in my life, my parents, they would probably say they were non-religious, probably subscribed to more of like native religion, which is from Ghana in West Africa, but then both converted to Christianity when I was about six or so. And then my life dramatically changed, right? It was like church on Sunday with the nice socks and the pretty dress and hair that was pulled too tight. (laughs) And then at about... 12 or 13, we moved to the U.S. and they became a part of an evangelical Christian community. And so then faith shifted again. And for me at that time, I was sort of asking the hard questions, you know? So what happened to the people who lived before Christ? What happens to the people who are sinners? All of those questions that terrified me and also inspired me to ask more questions about this religious belief versus what I think is a spiritual connectedness to God. And so as I grew into adulthood, my faith shifted so that I realized my own personal connection with God in a spiritual life versus a religious one. It's a big part of your life. I mean, you speak and write about it, and it's also Part of what I remember connected us the first time we met, which is our belief in coincidences, which is kind of another way of recognizing that there is some blueprint, some pattern to life, that things are not arbitrary and and gives us a sense of belonging. Tell us about your love of coincidences. Oh my gosh. I just think they're so magical. If I had missed a plane or I had decided not to answer the email from Maverick Carter, which invited me to Las Vegas on a day earlier than I planned to arrive from my vacation, that I would have missed the dinner in which I sat across from you and would have never met you. I mean, I think that's a pretty big deal. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a very big deal for me. Very big deal. You know, and I, I find that in my life, there are lots of moments like that, that hairpin moment where it's like, if you had just gone left, this would have happened instead of that. I think it's, it's miraculous. I think about that in the relationships that I have too, you know, in how I met Peter, that if certain things had happened a different way, I would not have been in that moment 
where our eyes lock than we had our interaction. You know, so I think coincidences are just magic. And in the book you are writing now about Peter and his death and all the pictures you took towards the end, how is that process of reliving that incredibly intense part of your life at a moment when you are so engaged in your life now? Yeah. Well, I think this is why it's so important for us to listen to our own internal clock and our own spirit, you know, in directing how we live. Because I have certainly been encouraged to write this book for a long time. You know, it's been seven years since Peter died. And I would say even after the first year, people were asking me to use the pictures and Facebook posts and just transcribe them into a book. And it never felt right. And for whatever reason, I always knew that at some point it would feel right to write the book or maybe never. And I was comfortable with either one. But as I approached the last couple of years, when it was the fifth anniversary of his death, in fact, I think I called you and told you that I felt like grief had become such a heavy cloak for me that I wanted to take it off. I didn't want to carry it anymore. And in that moment, it took me, I would say, a good six to eight months to shed it. And then in the sixth year, I started thinking, I think I could go there again without feeling like I would sink to the bottom of the ocean, that I had perspective, I had levity. There was a new way that I looked at the experience that wasn't so saddled with desperation to hold on to that moment, to wonder what if I was satisfied with where life is today. And so that felt right, that it was time then to write. And that fear of sinking to the bottom of the ocean is what you've described as fear of falling, which is also the other side of your fear of heights when you get on planes. So where are you in that uh, (laughs) journey? You know, because fear of falling is also like fear of depth, fear of going deeper in yourself, fear of alone time, all those things that you've explored in a bigger way during the pandemic. Oh, Ariana, it is like, ah, those two opposites are such big fears. I didn't realize they were connected until I started paying attention. I'm perfectly fine in shallow water. You know, let's just call it Caribbean water where I can see the bottom of the ocean, you know, (laughs) like you can still see the sand. As soon as that water turns dark blue and I can no longer see the bottom, I am done. It doesn't matter that I can swim. The paralyzing fear of not knowing what's on the bottom, I think really like translates to this feeling of emotional fear of the depth that I was afraid of of sinking any deeper into into grief or into any negative feeling because I was afraid I wouldn't come out of it. That was a real, real fear. And if I'm being totally honest, I don't know if I ever allowed myself to get to the very bottom. I think I'm still afraid to go all the way down there. But also, you use the pandemic to go deeper. And that's part of you describing that you needed more alone time than you had had. And I love that. In fact, I'm thinking that we can break some news today that uh, Boz is coming out as a loner. Uh, Have you told anybody else about that? Or can we call it an exclusive? I don't think anybody would guess (laughs) that you actually need and enjoy alone time. I know. This This was a big discovery. 
I, I have now admitted to myself and now to the world, thanks to you, that I am indeed a loner. It's a complicated place to be. I do love people, but they're tiring. <laughs> and I really like my alone time. I like to be with my thoughts and I like to be by myself. So I'm considering whether or not I've, I've actually been a people person or was that a label that was put on me at some point? Well, isn't it also that you like refueling time? That's how I see it. I find that I love people if I have enough time to refuel. But the minute I start running on empty, it's exhausting. And becoming more conscious of that, I mean, that's part of what the pandemic has done for me, being more aware of where I am on this journey in terms of me and people, because I'm a secret introvert too, which is hard to believe, uh, but true. And that's why those of us who are secret introverts had a little bit of an easier time <laughs> during the pandemic. Yes, I, I believe that. I believe that. Interestingly enough, I remember in the early days of the pandemic, I remember seeing people who were extroverts or who needed people in order to have energy and what they must be going through. And I remember looking at that and feeling like, that doesn't feel like me at all and being confused <laughs> by it, you know, and feeling like, but shouldn't I be more upset that I don't see people? But no, I'm not. I'm perfectly okay. <laughs> and of course, we are very lucky. We are both very close to our kids. And having Lel with you and discovering more of each other, as you put it, was also a big gift of the pandemic. Tell us about that. Oh, what an incredible gift. You know, at least in the U.S., you have to go back to work almost immediately. The same for me. She was about six weeks old when I went back to work. And she had been a super preemie. And I have not been at home for a consecutive week since. And I, I don't think I recognized that pattern until we stopped moving, you know, until I sat down and I was like, wow, like this is, this is so strange, you know, to be here every single day, day in and day out. And if I'm being totally honest, it was a little scared by that. I was a little bit afraid of what we would discover about each other. But I, I love it also because I think we have our own space. And I love the fact that we're actually very similar in terms of how we want to interact with each other, which, of course, is a blessing. <laughs> and I love the way she's such a big part of your life. It's very Greek. I always had my daughters be a big part of my life. And at first it was weird in many circles. You know, you're bringing your children to everything you're doing. <laughs> but I, lo I love the way you integrate her into everything. And including, you know, in this summer of incredible unrest and reckoning and making sure she knows she's part of that deep history. I also remember what you said when we're both working at Uber, and it was really kind of ahead of its time. Um, you looked around and you said, you want people to realize that it can't just be up to people of color to change the system. We need buy-in from more people and that you want people, white men, to look around the room and say, hey, there's a lot of white men here. Let's change this. And, uh, you know, now this has become part of the conversation and there is a widespread agreement around that. But when you said it, it was still not how the world was seeing racial injustice and changing outcomes. Yeah. It was very frustrating to me, Ariana. At the time, I felt it even more acutely because 
it was, like you said, at Uber, where I was in my second job in Silicon Valley at a, you know, very senior level and finding that the responsibility of diversity and inclusion somehow fell to me all the time, <laughs> even though I was the only one in the room. And I was tired, you know, and I looked around and thought, well, I didn't build this racist and sexist system that we're in. Why do you think I have the tools to dismantle it? Like if you built it, you probably have the tools to dismantle it. You know, and it seemed very logical to me, but when I said it, Woo, it got a lot of feedback. I'm just thankful that we are in a position now in which people agree. I'm okay with that. Yes, I love it. And thank you for the big role you played in getting us to this point. And we all know there is a long road ahead. And let me quickly ask my family to be a little quieter in the other room. Hi, guys. Hi, family. I'm just uh, doing my podcast with Boz. Can you be a little quieter? They're Greek. They can't be a little quieter, but they'll try. <laughs> I love it. Very much like the Africans, all the yes. same. <laughs> Living life urgently and loudly. <laughs> oh, and loudly. I mean, because what is life without the, the loudness of it? Yes. So now we come to our quick rapid fire questions. So we talked about God, but can you define God? Oh, gosh, that is such a difficult question. I think God is very personal to me. And so it's difficult to define God without myself in it. Mm, love that. And what do you do when you want to feel connected to something larger than yourself? Mm, I surrender. Yeah, because it just feels that big. Now, describe your relationship to your phone in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Or one oh. word, whatever. Addicted. <laughs> Confession is the beginning of change. <laughs> What's on your nightstand? Oh, um, my books and my journal. And what song would you choose as the soundtrack to your life today? It may change tomorrow, just today. Oh, today I would choose Paul Simon. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Mm, love that. Name a joy trigger, something that invariably gives you joy. Oh, gosh. That's so hard because there's so many. Sunshine. Sunshine. Except uh, during the grieving time when you're angry at the sun. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> what do you worry most about before you go to sleep? You know how sometimes when we have those moments of worry? Hmm. What's mm. yours? There are daily worries, but I think the um, philosophical overarching worry is if I will have enough time. Mm. To do everything you want to do. Do everything I want to do. Yeah. What do you do when you can't sleep? <laughs> I daydream, actually. Fantastical things. Mm. <laughs> and then you make them happen. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> what lesson in life do you wish you'd learned earlier? Mm that I am really powerful mm. in my own right. And how do you know when you are thriving? <sighs> when I feel really satisfied. Boz, thank you so much for joining me. I loved our conversation. Oh, it's so wonderful. I would do anything for you. I love you. I love you.
And before we wrap up today, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by the conversation that Boz and I just had that you can take with you. I loved Boz's newfound embrace, not just of alone time, but of meditation, which is like advanced alone time. So today's micro step is about meditation and breathing. So many people think that they don't have time to meditate or think of meditation as the overly disciplined thing where you have to stop all your thoughts. But really, the heart of meditation is just breathing and awareness. And can we all agree that if you're alive, you have time to breathe? So today's micro step is just to focus on the rising and falling of your breath for 10 seconds. You can do this when you feel stressed or as a way of setting the tone for your alone time. You can gradually lengthen it to 30 seconds, then to a minute or two. It's a great micro step toward a meditation practice. And to borrow from Boz, breathing and being aware of our breathing is a way to live urgently by going deeper. Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next time on What I've Learned. We all need help sometimes saying goodbye to the day and allowing ourselves to drift off to sleep. That's why Thrive Global has teamed up with Audible to create the Audible Sleep Collection, a series of guided meditations and stories from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, and many others, including Kiki Palmer, who we are about to hear from now. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. In a bedtime story called The Story of the Ojibwe Dreamcatcher, Kiki shares the Ojibwe story of the Dreamcatcher and how its message of our connection to the natural world is still present with us today. Hello. Tonight I'm going to share with you the story of the Ojibwe Dreamcatcher. But before I begin, take a moment to unwind and get comfortable. Close your eyes and slowly take a few deep breaths. With each exhale, let the trials of the day fade away. Continue inhaling and exhaling until you feel completely relaxed. When an Ojibwe baby is born, a gift that is traditional in many families and communities is a dream catcher. The intricate web within a circle that is placed near where the baby will sleep. Dream catchers have their origin with the Ojibwe, a large tribal group of extended families and clans who live in northern woodlands, a boreal homeland above and below the border between the United States and Canada. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear the sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight. <laughs>